Blog Talk Radio. It's been a hard day's night, and I've been working like a dog. It's been a hard day's night, I should be sleeping like a log. But when I get home to you, I find the things that you do will make me feel alright. You know I work all day to get your money to buy a thing, and it's worth it just to hear you. Welcome to She Said, She Said, the radio show of rock and roll comparisons and contrasts. If that song doesn't put you in a good mood, then you must not have a pulse. I am Lena Stagg, the author of the Recipe Records series, a unique collection of four innovative rock and roll cookbooks that incorporate rock history, facts, trivia, and photos with clever recipes themed for music genres and bands. There's the original Recipe Records book, which covers music from around the 50s up until today. And then we have Recipe Records, the 60s edition, which has your nostalgic, lovely dishes that your mom used to make and the fan-favorite Recipe Records, a tribute to the Beatles, with great dishes such as Strawberry Pie Forever, which is uh, a favorite and um, of mine and it because it was submitted by my best friend, Jude Sutherland-Kessler. We also have the Rolling Scones Let's Spend the Bite Together, a clever look at the music and cuisine associated with those bad boys, the Rolling Stones. Check out all of the books at lanastag.com. And while you're there, sign up for my free newsletter and blog. Hey, guys. I am Jude Sutherland Kessler, Lena's trusty sidekick. I'm just back from the wonderful, windy city of Chicago, where we had the official book launch at the Fest for Beatles fans for Volume 4 in my John Lennon series. It is a massive tome, over a 1,000 pages, entitled Should Have Known Better, and it details John's life and, of course, the um, exciting, fast-paced episodes of Beatlemania that touched all of the Beatles in 1964. And for those of you who are new and listening to this broadcast for the first time, the John Lennon series is a nine-volume, highly researched historical narrative. It is not historical fiction. It is a historical narrative that chronicles the life of John and naturally his mates, the Beatles. And Almost every sentence is footnoted. You have over 4,000 footnotes in the books. The first book should have been there, covers John's childhood and teen years. Volume 2, Shivering Inside, takes you through 61 to 63, when the Beatles rose to fame in the United Kingdom but hadn't yet come to America. That actually happens in Volume 3, She Loves You, which traces John's life throughout that great year of the birth of Beatlemania, 1963. And then the latest volume, as I just said, takes you through the madness, the madness that is Beatlemania in 64. As Lena suggested, you can find out more about all of my books on my website, johnlennonseries.com, where you can sign up for my monthly newsletter as well. Whew, just listening to all that 
You have a lot going on these days, Jude, and I know that we have gotten to see and enjoy a lot of the celebration from all those pictures on Facebook and Twitter. So everybody that's listening, be sure you check out John Lennon series on Facebook and Jude Sutherland Kessler. One of the biggest things we're going to go on about today is our friendly debate about which Beatles film was the finest, A Hard Day's Night or Help. Jude and I kicked off our discussion last month when noted Beatles historian, our buddy Al Sussman, joined us for a look at the history of each film. And now today, we're very blessed to have one of the most savvy Beatles experts in America here to talk with us about the theme of each film and the possible deeper meanings or symbolism hidden in these supposedly simple and happy-go-lucky movies. That is absolutely right. Lena and I are really thrilled today to have one of the most respected Beatles minds in America or the world here with us. He is the founder and editor of Beatle Fan Magazine, and he's been researching and writing about the Beatles and keeping fans all over the world informed about them since, get this, December of 1978. That is 40 years of researching and writing about the Beatles in depth. He has a, an amazing and respected staff who writes for Beatle fan, including Al Sussman and Dr. Kid O'Toole and John Firehammer and so, so many more. Very respected publication. And he's got a new Beatle fan blog online, which is keeping the Internet supplied with up-to-date info uh, about the Beatles and when Paul is touring and Ringo's touring and all the new records and everything. He's been on my show before when I had the old John Lennon hour, and he was a wonderful guest. Hailing from Atlanta, Georgia, it is an honor to welcome Bill King to the program. Hey, Bill. Here. Hey, hey there, Bill. Great to hey. hear you. Good to hear you. Thank you so much for being on today. We are we have been so excited and uh, been chatting a lot about this for a couple of weeks. So uh, thanks for taking all of the time, taking all of uh, out from all of your busy, busy conquests to be here. So Bill, Jude, and I are doing this five-part series on A Hard Day's Night as compared to Help. And I'm the champion of A Hard Day's Night, while Jude is the sadly misguided proponent of Help. And I have to say that, like most people, I've always felt that A Hard Day's Night as was the superior film. Sorry to say, Jude. I mean, as you well know, it was nominated for not one, but two Academy Awards, the best screenplay, thanks to the genius of Alan Owen, and, of course, best score, thanks to the genius of George Martin. And for the last 50 years, critics have heralded A Hard Day's Night as the artsier of the two movies for its wonderful black-and-white portrayal of a band trapped by fame. So what say you, Bill? How do you feel about A Hard Day's Night? I love A Hard Day's Night. It's uh, one of my all-time favorite movies. I think Dick Lester is a brilliant filmmaker, and it's worth noting that his work in A Hard Day's Night proved very influential 
on 60s cinema with its cinema verite style, handheld camera work, the dizzying camera angles, and all the fast-cut editing. But I think what's really notable about the film is that it was so much more than it needed to be. It could have just been another hokey fictional story providing a framework for some new songs, Mm -hmm. like most of the teenage rock films of the 50s and the early 60s. That's really all United Artists expected. But thanks to Alan Mm -hmm. Owen and Dick Lester, what we got was art. And I think the key to it was that Lester knew he was dealing with performers with no previous acting experience, and he felt it was important that they play themselves and that the film's plot featured things they were familiar with, like press conferences and TV appearances and so on. So what we got wasn't a documentary, but it was sort of a comedic impression of what the Beatles' professional life was like in the days of Beatlemania. Uh, and, as, and as Lester later said, because he had the Beatles doing what they did anyway, it really did prove to be relatively an accurate representation of what they were going through. Mm-hmm. And the same goes with the screaming fans seen in the film. Lester didn't really direct them. He just simply turned them loose mm-hmm. and let them behave as they normally would upon seeing the Beatles. And you mentioned Alan Owen's script, and that admittedly reduced the four Beatles to stereotypes, the stereotypes that would stick with them for years. Witty, acerbic John, debonair Paul, quiet but clever George, and sweet, funny, taken-for-granted Ringo. <laughs> but it did so with such style and wit that they instantly were elevated to a status above the average pop star making a movie. And the movie showed them as, as guys who took all this tremendous success with a grain of salt and managed to maintain their working class impudence. So it, it made them very relatable. Yeah, that's very interesting. Very interesting. Do you think that Alan Owen is, or what do you think that Alan Owen is trying to say about the Beatles and their life um, through the the movie, through A Hard Day's Night? I think uh, Owen's script does provide some commentary on various aspects of, of the Beatles' fame, like how the public viewed them, the pluses of being a star, like when Ringo gets the invitation to a posh gambling club, which Paul's grandfather takes, uh, the devotion their fans had for them, the limitations that fame put on them. They couldn't go out in public without fear of being chased by teenage girls. And this prisoners of fame idea was summed up by Paul's grandfather in the movie, who complained that while traveling with them, they'd been in a train and a room and a car and a room and a room and a room. Mm-hmm. Great line, and it, it, that, that pretty much summed up their touring days. But Owen also neatly poked fun at the interactions with non-fans they had to put up with, like the press conference with its clueless questions, and John's mm-hmm. encounter with the pretentious woman on the stairwell who almost recognized him. Mm-hmm. And as I said earlier, Owen basically created the, the public personas of the Beatles. He knew how Liverpoolians spoke. He hung out with the Beatles on a visit to Ireland when they were performing, and he observed how they interacted. And as McCartney later said, he was careful to try and put words in their mouths that he might have heard them speak. And it's also important that uh, both A Hard Day's Night and Help allowed George and Ringo to step out of the shadow of John and Paul. I mean, it's noteworthy that that both films, plot-wise, revolved essentially around Ringo. And then in Hard Day's Night, there's that famous sequence featuring George encountering the trendy advertising team. And that provided Mm -hmm. a glimpse Mm -hmm. of the man behind the teen magazine facade of Quiet Beetle. 
And Lester later said that he that George was the best and most natural actor of the four, and I think you see that in that scene. But the script also gives us uh, a behind-the-scenes view of the sort of mutually supportive band of brothers, four musketeers relationship within the band. And it also allowed them to show their relatively mild but still anti-authoritarian attitude through their cheeky interactions with, like, the stuffy man on the train, the TV director, played by the wonderful Victor Spinetti, the police, and even the man who runs them off the field where they break free for a bit during the Can't Buy Me Love segment. Yeah, right, that band of brothers right. thing is so important that I think it it flows over into help as well. So, you know, it's really there. Well, I obviously agree with everything that that you and Lena are saying about A Hard Day's Night. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's a genius film. And and the Village Voice in New York once called it the Citizen Kane of jukebox musicals. So, look, that's pretty darn hard to top. But I guess my personal preference is for help and it makes me sort of sad because I think it is a creation that's been overlooked really in the last five decades. Not entirely overlooked because in sixty five it won first place at the International Film Festival in Rio. But you know, largely the Beatles world has kind of turned up its nose at the film. But I think there's more there as Ringo would say, there's more to this than meets the eye. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. I mean like you said, once again it's the work of Lester and Shenson, this great pair that, that was so genius in bringing Hard Day's Night to life. And although Alan Owen was amazing in Hard Day's Night, the writers of Help are also two geniuses. You have one Brit, Charles Wood, and one American, Mark Beam, and they work together so well. Um, Wood, I think most Beatles fans know, um, went on to work with Richard Lester on adapting Patrick Ryan's novel into How I Won the War, which, of course, John is private grip weed in, and then went on to do this great, great play in London that was all the rage called The Knack and How to Get It. So he's no ingenue. He he knows what he's doing. And Mark Beam, well, not only does he score big with help, but he has this little jewel of a fan a film that's called Charade with Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn. So the writing in Help is just amazing. It's taken from a story that Beam had written and adapted to fit the Beatles. So there are tons of great, 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 great quotable quotes. I love, love, love it. What do you say, Bill? Well, I do think Hard Day's Night is the superior cinematic work, but I believe Help is underrated, like you said, and it's not just the silly film that it appears on the surface. Really, it, it was a much more influential piece of filmmaking than a lot of people realize. Uh, in putting help together, uh, Lester knew the Beatles didn't want to do the same thing over again with their second film. So he made it the opposite of the black-and-white documentary-like comedy that was Hard Day's Night. Help is a colorful fantasy. It takes like a comic book-style approach. It's not a very realistic look. Uh, and it's a highly fictionalized version of the Beatles story. In terms of plot, of course, it's a spoof of the James Bond films that were all the rage at the time, and it, it features the band as the obligatory innocent bystanders in such films who routinely get caught up in an outlandish plot. This one involving a mystical, sacrificial ring that Ringo had, and a broad parody of an Eastern thuggy cult, which it must be said is rather racist by today's sensibilities. Yeah. Uh, and it's all dressed up with the chase scenes and the gorgeous locations of a spy flick, eye candy. 
basically, though, it's an absurdist comedy. It's, it runs the gamut from dry British wit to Marx Brothers-influenced sight gags and slapstick. And plus, in keeping with the irreverent image that they'd already established in A Hard Day's Night, it features more lampooning of British stereotypes, ranging from the Beatles' nosy but good-hearted neighbors to the officious, rather clueless Scotland Yard inspector. In terms of comedic approach, I think there was a lot of the surreal Peter Sellers goon show humor that the Beatles had grown up with. And in turn, Help itself proved to be a direct influence on the school of British comedy typified by Monty Python that followed. For Mm -hmm. example, when the band's manservant cuts their joint apartment's artificial indoors lawn with a pair of chattering false teeth. (laughs) And George eating a cymbal in the marching band after the villain Clang wins the ski jumping tournament. Paul whistling for his bicycle like a horse in a Western movie, and it falls over in response. Yeah. And then, of course, the exciting adventure of Paul on the floor. Yeah. Lester's this frenetic style of comedy that he used in Help, full of wordplay and sight gags, has been cited as an influence on such later film comedies as the Airplane series and even the work of Spike Lee. Yeah. But uh, in addition to that, fans got what they really wanted from the Beatles film. Lots and lots of loving footage of the fabs. Nobody photographed the Beatles as lovingly as Dick Lester. Yeah. And new Beatles music. And the innovative way that Lester shot their music in help gave us the modern music video, leading to Lester being lauded by MTV later in 1984 as the father of the music video, an honor that he considered rather dubious. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's, that's a pretty big honor, actually. You know, I mean, that's absolutely yeah, really a nod. Well, I mean, we all know that the real reason that United Artists wanted to put these films together, spending almost nothing on A Hard Day's Night and then going a little big budget on help was that they are using that let's record a soundtrack loophole to get a Beatles record that they can sell. That was the plum, you know, that was the prize. But, of course, in retrospect, we're looking back and saying, yes, that's what they started with, but through the Shenzhen-Lester combination, they turned this into something that could stand alone as a work of art. I mean, these aren't just fun and game shows. As you said, they they far surpassed the, the rock band films of the 1950s. And I see a, a, a deeper level of meaning than it just being a wild romp. And you and I kind of talked about this a little bit last week. So do you think that there is, you know, in A Hard Day's Night, you get a lot of symbolism in the Beatles being encaged. They're in that cage where they're playing cards, and they're, you see a lot of symbolism in it that mm-hmm. refers to Beatlemania. Do you see that at all in Help? Well, I think you can see you you can find some commentary in the help script on 60s society, modern religion. Uh, You know, there's the scene with Clang sitting there sharing tea with an official from the Anglican Church. Right. Uh, British officialdom, you know, from Scotland Yard on to the army and pop culture in general. But it's very important to realize that the Beatles had next to nothing to do with the creation of help other than right. showing up in a marijuana daze and doing what they were told. They were dropped into this spy spoof surrounded by a supporting cast of wonderful, great British comedic stars, including Leo McKern, Victor Spinetti again, Eleanor Braun, Patrick Cargill, Roy Kinnear, and John later complained that the Beatles felt like extras in their own film. 
Mm-hmm. And he also noted that not only did mm-hmm. they not have any input into the film's creation, but Dick Lester didn't even tell them what it was about. Uh, part of that, John admitted, was because they spent most of their time yeah. during the film's production getting high, and nobody could communicate with us, he said. And also, they had mm-hmm. quickly become bored with the time-consuming process of making a movie. As, as Paul, I think, said in the in Beatles anthology, he said, I'm not sure anyone knew the script. We just used to learn it on the way to the set. Yeah. Uh, later, mm-hmm. John did take some pride in the end result, saying that he thought uh, Help was a precursor to the Batman, Pal, Wham kind of shows. Mm-hmm. But what, whatever you, know, uh, you see beyond the surface picture in, in Help is basically the filmmakers. It's not the Beatles. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with that. I don't think they were aware at all of what Mark Bean was trying to do. And you know, it's funny that John makes those exact same comments. And Tony Barrow's book, he calls Barrow, and I use this conversation and should have known better, and says, look, this Alan Owen is ruining things for us. Yeah, he, we don't speak like this. We've never used the word grotty. We don't, we don't, He's making it. He's making us into caricatures. We don't even know what this film is about. We are. We're in the car, learning it on the way to work, and that's the hard days night he's talking about. So mm-hmm. I think they were ambivalent about both films, and especially with the drug use, with marijuana use. You know, they were out of it with help. But I think to me, I got all excited about this when I started looking into it a couple of weeks ago. Bean had been watching what was happening in the papers in 64 and the very, very beginning of 65. They're beginning the filming at the end of February of 65. And he sees what's been happening. And Beatlemania is essentially this mad attack on the Beatles, whether they're closed up in their hotel room and have to get into a car and try to get out of a hotel and into a a stage to perform, or whether they're having missiles thrown at them, lipstick cases, a raw steak in Chicago, a canned fruit in Cleveland, they are being attacked constantly. And so this image of a group of people after the Beatles is a very symbolic and real one. I mean, it's really going on. And poor Ringo, he is the one that seems to fare worst. He's the one whose hair is cut at the British Embassy party in February of 64. He's knocked down in Dallas outside their hotel. They're trying to come in the rear of the hotel. Art Shriver says that by the time they reached Ringo and pulled him out, Art's shirt was shredded. Blood was running down Art's back, and Ringo Mm. had turned purple. Um, Ringo's knocked down going into his hotel in Australia. For some reason, he seems to be the target, and that's cleverly transposed into the film. And then there are a few little clues to the new direction that are sort of hidden in help, because George, in that famous scene with the Scotland Yard inspector, the telephone rings, and the inspector answers it, covers the, the speaker, and says, it's for you, and then John says... uh, For us, who knows we're here? Only Paul and I know we're here. And George mutters, I know we're here. You can hear that little hint Mm. of discontent. And then at the end of the film, what does George do? Voices, I Need You by George Harrison. You're beginning to get a hint that he's a little bit disgruntled. It's the first glimpse of, of I Me Mine, you know, coming up. But I agree with you, Bill. A lot of 
the symbolism in the film about the torrent of Beatlemania tracking the Beatles down and trying to sacrifice them on the altar of fame is something that the screenwriters knew, but not so much the Beatles. I would I would say you know you, you it's a valid you know point that you that you make, uh, but I'm. I'm not entirely sure that even the filmmakers that directly were trying to to draw, you know, a, a hard and fast correlation between uh, an Eastern, you know, cult chasing yeah. them and and the Beatles dealing with their fans. I, and 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 some of the you know some of the interactions, uh, whether it's with Ringo or or George or whatever, uh, those those were just in keeping with the the personas that had been created already for them. Uh, yeah. So you know, I I and I don't think really you know whatever George said in the film, George was just saying what he was told to say. Uh, so it's not like George was actually expressing an opinion there. Well, one never knows. <laughs> you know, I mean, it certainly comes out later that way. But um, it is it's very interesting. I mean, if you and of course I don't want to be like the man that appears outside John's house in the film Imagine that says, "Oh, John, you wrote all those things for me." And John is like, "What's wrong with you, man?" Yeah, I didn't do that. I wrote those songs for me. You're crazy. But it, there are just so many things that seem fun and, and senseless and giddy and, and just a wild James Bond's poof romp, but really do have parallels to what was going on in the Beatles. And Beam was such a genius. And I think, well, maybe maybe he intended some of that. Maybe he didn't care whether we saw it or not or whether we knew it or not but it really was sort of a symbolic portrayal of Bill Manny you never know but before we run out of time because we're coming up on about five minutes live and we have some extra time after Bill tell us about Beetle Fan and how people can subscribe to it Okay, um, Beetle Fan is as the name would imply a magazine for fans of the Beatles um, comes out six times a year, and in it we cover all the news. We review the latest books, records, films, videos, etc. Uh, we interview people who were involved with them, and even occasionally a Beatle. Over the years, we've had quite a few chats with Paul and Ringo, and once I even talked with George. Uh, we also provide an outlet that for expert analysis of their careers and their work, together and apart, past and present. Uh, uh, you, you alluded to this earlier. Our, our contributors are a stellar group that include historians, journalists, musicians, Beatles experts. We've got Wally Pedrozic, Alan Cozen, Al Sussman, Bruce Spizer, Brad Hunt, Tom Frangione, Kid O'Toole, John Firehammer, Rip Rance, Story Grayson, Ken Sharp, Howie, Howie Edelson, Jeff Slate, so many others. I'm sure I've left somebody out, and I hope they don't take offense. But over 40 years, which is will mark our 40th year of continuous publication this December, we've had an awful lot of people be part of this magazine. We couldn't have done it without them. Uh, if you'd like to subscribe, you can get complete information at Beetlefan.com, or you can email us at Beetlefanmagazine at gmail.com. Our main online outlet is on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Beetlefanmagazine. You can also find me on Twitter by searching at BeetleFanExtra. And our blog that you mentioned earlier is called Something New. It's free and can be found at BeetleFanSomethingNew.wordpress.com. And it's good that people this, – this show will be archived, and so people can go back and replay that and write it all down. 
Um, I am a subscriber, of course, and I save every single one of mine in a notebook because this is not just something, just Beatles news. This is Beatles scholarship, and it's great reference material for anyone doing research on the Beatles, and you want to hang on to your Beatles fan magazines because it's the equivalent of a, of a book on the Beatles about various topics. So um, the best of the best, right, for Beatle fan, and um, we we really appreciate you being here, Bill. I know, Lena, we're going to turn it over to you because we, we've skipped over, we've skipped to Beatle fan, but d- the thing that we're discussing this hell, hard day's night, there's no way that we can come to any agreement today. It's a huge topic, isn't it? You are absolutely correct. This is not the topic for a 40-minute radio show. We could kick these concepts around all afternoon or evening. Uh, over a few pints would be oh, yeah. uh, preferable. <laughs> but um, the Beatles the Beatles never did anything that was one-dimensional in everything they achieved. There is so much to discuss and mull over and discover in the years to come, and we are so thankful to Bill for coming on and giving us all of this information and um, discussing all of the different avenues that these movies took, and it's it's fantastic. And I highly encourage everyone listening to check out Beetle Fan Magazine. I need to renew my subscription. I'm embarrassed to say, but I will do that <laughs> tomorrow. So make sure that you check this out. It is a collector's item. I've I've kept all of my um our, my magazines over the years as well. And again, Bill, that was BeetleFanMagazine at gmail dot com. If they would like Correct. to get in touch with you, and BeetleFan something new at WordPress. BeetleFansomethingNew.wordpress.com is the blog. Yeah. Okay. And they can get to your magazines how? One more time. Uh, they they can uh, they can check out the uh, subscription information at BeetleFan.com or email us and and we'll tell them everything they need to know. And they can check us out on Facebook. That's where we do most of our interaction with readers and fans now. That's great. Well, Excellent. thank you again today, Bill. Excellent. We appreciate it so much. Always love having you on the show. It really is an honor. Well, thank you for having me on. It's been fun. And, guys, we hope Thanks to so see much. all of you in September live and in person at Beatles at the Ridge, September 14th and 15th in Walnut Ridge, Arkansas. Lane and I are co-chairing the Authors and Artists Symposium this year, and I'm telling you, No joke, we are bringing you the finest Beatles experts from all over the world to speak. You are going to love it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jude is so right. And Jude was instrumental in lining up all of these featured authors and artists. And so we are very thankful to Jude for getting this symposium lined up. We have coming from New York City, Vivek Tawari, and he's going to be talking about his upcoming television miniseries based on his award-winning graphic novel titled The Fifth Beetle, which is about the wonderful Brian Epstein, 
and David Bedford is coming all the way from Liverpool, and he will show his incredible film, Looking for Lennon, and debut his new book, Finding the Fourth Beetle, about the lads' long and winding road towards searching for their drummer. Then on Friday night, two of the reporters from the 1964 North American tour, Ivor Davis and Art Schreiber, will spend an hour sharing their wonderful true life stories and adventures. And John Trusty, who partied with the Beatles in Key West in 64, is going to be on hand as well. This is going to be a, a just a rocking event. Absolutely. I'm just so excited. The fact that we have both Ira Davis and Art Schreiber who were on that 1964 North American tour just blows me away. We're so lucky. We also have two very respected historians who are uh, working on the information about the Beatles fan clubs in America. Marty Edwards has written a book called 16 and 64 because she was the president of the Chicagoland Beatles People Fan Club, and she got to meet the Beatles and give them a plaque, and her story is absolutely precious. She's got very rare, unique photos to show. And then Sarah Schmidt, who wrote Happiness is Seeing the Beatles, Beatlemania in St. Louis, is working on her second book about the Beatles fan clubs in America. And she's going to be our Lunch and Learn speaker and talk about the impact these clubs made on the Beatles and on 1960s history. We're going to rock to the sounds of John Lennon impersonator Alan Bernhoft, who is one of the greatest Lennon impersonators in America. He's going to kick things off on Friday afternoon with a 45-minute Beatles concert. And then at 4.30, gifted teen musician Cameron Hicks is going to perform from beginning to end the 1964 classic, A Hard Day's Night LP. He is going to be great. Mm. And he'll kick off Saturday morning. You know, sometimes we go to these symposiums and conventions and festivals and we forget why we're there because we're so into learning He's going to give us 45 minutes of Beatles music to kick off our shoes and dance or play our tambourines Mm -hmm. and have fun. It's going to be a great way to kick off Saturday morning. And then we're going to have some pop-up art happenings for kids throughout the day on Saturday with artist Enoch Doyle Jeter. And you're going to get to see that beautiful new linen poster from artist Ram Kessler. Oh, and it is so so fantastic. And you'll get to see Jude's new book. You'll just love it. Oh, I'm so excited. Oh, and also for the kids at 4 p.m. on Saturday, we invite you to a milk and cookies party in the studio on Main Street where Ivor Davis will share his new children's book, the very, very funny and cute Ladies and Gentlemen, The Penguins. And then the day will conclude with our grand finale speaker, the great Dr. Kit O'Toole, who will celebrate the 50th 50th anniversary of the White Album with her talk on 10 Things You Never Knew About the White Album. It's going to be two great days of free entertainment, free parking, and we have lots of wonderful, wonderful people there to give you free information about the Beatles. So we hope to see you in Walnut Ridge, Arkansas for the festivities and the fun. Until then, here's to food for thought, food for the soul, and food for the love of rock and roll. ta and shine on. Help. I need somebody. Help. Not just anybody. Help. 